Many people start their evening by asking their loved ones how their day was. I've always loved asking that to my dad. Hearing dad talk about work is especially fascinating to me because his 9 to 5 was fairly unique. His job was keeping astronauts alive. Eventually, I decided to start recording some of his best work stories. Here are those stories as My Dad Built Spaceships. Hello, and thank you for listening to My Dad Built Spaceships. Before I get this episode started, I have a confession to make. I am a child. Despite being a 33-year-old man with a family and owning a business with employees and, you know, other things that should indicate that I'm somewhat mature, I am absolutely not. And I'm still a little child that laughs entirely too much at poop jokes. (laughs) But one of my favorite types of work stories to hear from Dad and have him share with my friends are the ones that involve the space toilet. And let me tell you, there's a lot of stories he had about the space toilet. (laughs) It's actually a complicated piece of machine, but, you know, it's also poop. (laughs) So, in this episode, it is filled with lots of crappy jokes. Eh? Eh? (laughs) So, yeah, if you're like me, you'll really like it. (laughs) And I hope that you are and that you enjoy it. Thanks. Okay. Go ahead, tell me what go ahead. I hired in at Rockwell in 1980. Mm-hmm. And I believe the first flight was 1981. Oh, yeah. So I was a junior engineer for the first flight. Did not do any mission support type functions. But the guy that sat next to me who had responsibility for the toilet. What? <laughs> Would be great. What, what, if you didn't have mission support type functions, what were you doing at the time? I was performing analysis on uh, some of the systems. Mm. One of the, the systems that I first did analysis on was something called the flash evaporator, mm-hmm. where they'd performed a test at KSC and it didn't come to the expected temperatures. What I determined. What does a flash evaporator do? Flash evaporator is a, a cooling device. For mm-hmm. cooling the vehicle. Well, and like the whole vehicle? The whole vehicle. The whole vehicle. Now we have a coolant loop that went from the back of the vehicle to the front of the vehicle mm-hmm. that was free on 21. And then inside the cabin, there was a heat exchanger that went to a water loop that was inside the cabin. Okay. Okay, so the water loop keeps the... The cabin cool. The water keeps the cabin cool and the avionics that were in the cabin cool. And the Freon keeps the, Freon, the rest of the vehicle. Freon takes the heat away from the cabin. And then uh, another major heat generator was the fuel cells. Mm-hmm. And it cools fuel cells. Okay, along, so with, the- along with some other avionics that were located in the mid-body and the aft fuselage. Now, the flash evaporator. Give me a real quick rundown on how that works. The flash evaporator takes water, sprays it uh, against a heat exchanger. Mm-hmm. And because the, the pressure is low, that water flashes and evaporates. Mm-hmm. In the process of evaporation, it cools the heat exchanger. So really, I mean, it's just a mister onto a heat exchanger. It's a fancy mister onto a heat exchanger with a fancy controller because you're trying to control the 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. 
which is six degrees above the freezing point of the water. But you do got to call it something really fucking cool, like flashy evaporator. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Everything has got to have a cool name. Can't even call it duct tape. Duct tape. It's got to be great tape. MBO 030 tape, as I recall. Okay. So, so there you are. Mission one. Sitting next to the guy that's doing mission support operations for the toilet. Yep. <laughs> I didn't have much involvement with the actual mission. A lot of the management had gone down to see the first launch. That probably was exciting. Yeah, uh, because that was a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. That was part of the, the an activity that was sponsored by the local National Management Association. So all the bosses were gone. And they... Uh, as you may know, that was that flight was uh, done by Mr. Young, John Young, and Richard or Dick Crippen. About six months prior to that flight, 60 Minutes did an expose on uh, the space shuttle program, uh, talking about how it was an old... Robert Crippen. Robert Crippen? Robert. Bob. Okay. Bob Crippen. All right. Sorry. Um, this is what the internet's for, though. Anyway, so 60 Minutes did an exposition about the space shuttle. Not space shuttle. Uh, they identified how it had been significantly overrun in terms of cost. What's a government program? Of course it was. And it was delayed significantly over the projections. It's a government program. Of course it was. Part of the reason that occurred, I found out sometime later, is that they provided a artificially low cost to... When the contract you know, get the program started, yeah, that's you know, that happens too. They, they knew they were doing that after the Apollo program was canceled. Oh, by the way, I didn't know this at the time, I've learned it relatively recently. The reason the Apollo program was canceled is the president was afraid of having another loss of life, mm-hmm. so there was capsules to make three more missions but the president at the time said we're not gonna i'm not gonna take the risk of losing another set of astronauts who was that president i believe it was tricky dick nixon so i wasn't involved in flight after the flight there was a post-flight press briefing by the astronauts Mm -hmm. there was some calls that were apparently made over the net about having difficulties with the toilet over the uh, okay, when you say over the net, you mean like from the astronauts down to Houston? Astronauts down in Houston on public net. With oh, <laughs> they're having trouble with what? The toilet. <laughs> so they're calling down, going mm, Houston. <laughs> we have a problem. <laughs> so when it came back, it was. Obvious that night that one of them did not know how to use the toilet when they went up, because to be able to utilize the toilet, you were supposed to mount the sit yourself down on the toilet, pull a lever up, and then pull it back. Let's talk just a second, just briefly about what's hard about using a toilet. Why do I? Why would I need to train to use a toilet? Using a toilet's easy. I use a toilet every day. Good. <laughs> Well, where you are today, you have a toilet that has uh, one of this, the benefits is gravity will pull the fecal material away from your body. <laughs> and it also pulls the, or allows the urine to fall into the toilet. In a predictable stream? In a predictable stream. Mm-hmm. When you're in a zero 
gravity environment. There mm-hmm. is no gravity to pull the fecal material away from your body. And the propulsive force of your urine stream will continue to propulse the urine and you indefinitely. (laughs) (laughs) That's always fun. I like, yeah, because was it Newton's law? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that's fundamentally the the premise behind any rocket engine. A rocket engine is just, you know, Really, a rocket engine is nothing more than something that throws something out one way really fast so that it can go in the other direction. That's correct. <laughs> Happens to be that, you know, combusting gases are the most efficient thing that you can throw in one direction to go in the other way. Efficient? Efficient? You don't like the word efficient? I'm not sure I'd call it the most efficient. You know, something of higher mass would be more efficient. Well, they're effective? I don't know. Uh, and controllable? Somewhere, ma'am. But just to finish my thought, like, yeah, really, anything in zero G that is... Anything zero G and without gravity affecting it, or you have a propulsive force, or a... You're ejecting something, will have an equal and opposite reaction on the mass which is ejecting it. If it's your body ejecting urine, then it will propel propel the individual urinating if there's adequate room for them to move. (laughs) I am a child, but I love it. Okay. Unfortunately, your fecal material does not have much of a propulsive force in exiting the body. That's actually surprising. Interesting. It is interesting. I find that interesting. I really would have thought that that would have a bit of force coming out, but, but no, huh? Not very much. Okay. Because it's it's exiting so slowly, typically. Yeah, unless you had, you know, spicy Indian food the night before. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) I got him. They talked about trouble with the toilet when they were on orbit with the ground crew. Right, right, on a a public channel. On a public channel everybody could listen to. They're doing a press... Presser afterwards, press conference. And then press conference afterward became apparent that uh, the crew did not know how to use the toilet. And the difficulty with this toilet is... How, the, how did it become apparent? <laughs> so the, I guess the press must have asked him about that? Yes, the press asked him about that because they had, had listened to the open net. <laughs> Do you remember any of the, like any of the questions or no, like? No, I don't remember. The oh questions. man! Of course, the crew I've all blamed to, it on the design of the toilet. I've got to find that. Oh yeah, sure, sure, no, that, yeah. That didn't have anything to do with their training. It had to do with the design of the toilet was not correct. And in actuality, the toilet did not get a lot of attention in the design and development. Because if it didn't work, it wasn't a life-threatening condition. You could go back to the Apollo diapers that were used. Right. So you didn't have to have the toilet work, so it wasn't a focus for attention. Right. But over time, over time, it becomes a problem. Yeah. Because nobody really wants to go do poo in a diaper. Uh, The Apollo bags that you used for fecal material actually had an adhesive that you put on your your backside. Right. Put you dump your fecal material into the bag 
and then the bag was airtight so to preclude uh, the bag for from having a bad effect you had to put a biocide into the bag and then the individuals that designed that encouraged the crews to need this biocide into the fecal material uh, from the outside of the bag to preclude the the bacteria or the bugs from generating gas and making the bag blow up. Space, the final frontier. <laughs> Boldly going where no man has gone before and needing your poo in a bag. <laughs> this is definitely this is the nuts and bolts that people don't think about. This is the less glamorous part, but that was Apollo. I mean, that was part of the job. And they did so, it. They did it. The, the shuttle toilet, they wanted to get away from the bags. We had a toilet which had airflow to help remove the fecal material from the body. To, right. And then it had airflow to, to direct the urine flow away from the body. Yeah. So, yeah, well, airflow. Um, and then you after know, the person had- has completed using it, then the fecal material was exposed to vacuum to control the order and reduce the amount of uh, uh, liquid associated with it. You know, it, it, explain that to me a little bit. Exposed to vacuum. Like, so was there like a tiny little airlock in the in the toilet container there? The toilet was an airlock. The toilet was an airlock. It's about 36 inches in diameter, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat spherical in design. Mm-hmm. It had a hole on the top, which you... Uh, yeah, like a four-inch hole or something? Four-inch hole at the top, which fecal material came in, and it had a valve at the bottom that um, would expose it to vacuum. So there was a valve at the top that had to be opened before you used it, and the valve at the bottom that had to be, be closed, closed. Yeah, or you'd have a bad day. And to be able to do that, there was a lever that you pulled up and then pulled back. When you pulled it up... It closed the vacuum valve on the bottom, and when you pulled it back, it opened up the what we call the slide valve on top. Okay, so the valve at the bottom. How big is the valve at the bottom? The valve at the bottom was relatively small, maybe um, a half inch diameter. Okay, so it is. Yeah, you're just exposing everything to vacuum, but you're not like things aren't escaping through no. the bottom valve. You're freeze drying. What we're doing is freeze drying the fecal material. Yeah. With space. With the vacuum of space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, we got that uh, valve at the top, and um, it was apparent that the astronauts were not using the things correctly. Well, when the unit came back and we took pictures of us, there was fecal material on top of the slide valve. What? So, the top valve was not open when, the first, when somebody used it. <laughs> you know. The rumor has it the Crippen taught John Young how to use it on orbit. Oh, really? I thought it was the other way around, but okay. And I'm not certain yeah, yeah, which, which way? way it really went. But uh, somebody taught somebody else. Somebody taught somebody else. Mm-hmm. Now, the other interesting thing about that toilet is that we didn't include... A whole lot of features to hold the uh, crew member in place while they were using it. <laughs> right. Which, if we go back and recall our discussion about urine and rockets, yes. <laughs> that could be a problem. Well, 
it, it's a little bit more interesting than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a seatbelt to hold the person on the toilet while they were utilizing the toilet. Okay, makes sense. We uh, didn't fully appreciate, or it wasn't really fully appreciated, that you might have to wipe yourself. So you take off the seatbelt and you lift yourself up to wipe yourself. You've lost your constraint to keep you there, and you find yourself drifting across the cabin <laughs> trying to wipe yourself. <laughs> Which seems uh, uncomfortable at best. <laughs> Certainly embarrassing if the other guy's around. Okay. Hey, Bob, you want to help me back down? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, and then the I gotta say, Bob, you really caught me with my pants down here. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a little bit uncomfortable for the crew, and that was a design deficiency. That yeah, I was told that there were some additional crew constraints in the original design. When we say crew constraints, we're talking you know like things to hold you in place, right? Right. And during the preliminary design reviews. And the critical design reviews of that toilet, the uh, representatives of the astronaut office indicated they didn't need them. Of course they did. So they were taken off as a weight saving. <laughs> wow. Everybody got an attaboy for the weight saving. Mm-hmm. They, uh, identif- they built it to where it was at best marginal twos. <laughs> Another difficulty holding is... Holding onto the walls, holding yourself <laughs> down, and trying to go to the toilet, Jean. And you got to wipe yourself. What do I do? <laughs> Another challenge is that the urinal was set up with a hose. And it was set up with a hose such that while you're sitting on the toilet, you could urinate into the hose. Mm-hmm. And then should you not need to go defecate, you could stand in front of the toilet and utilize the hose and hold the hose and, and urinate into the hose. And we'll keep in mind, at this point, we're only talking male astronauts also. It was a good five-something years before we had any, maybe not that long, but a few years before we had any female astronauts. That's affirmative. So, just, uh, you know, imagine the mechanics involved there. And again, we're talking a little bit of uh, airflow to remove fecal material and uh, urine away. So, we're talking a a mild suction, you know, to uh, take care of business. (laughs) So, the hose was curved up to come to the commode position right yeah so you're sitting down on the toilet hose comes with a little bit of a curve up to you <laughs> up to the person right if you only needed to urinate and you wanted to stand in front of the toilet you held the hose with the, with one hand and held your member with the other hand and the hose itself wanted to go back to its preformed condition so it actually picked the astronaut up and put his head near the toilet, <laughs> near the fecal receptacle. So Yeah, so yeah, you're standing there trying to go, and the hose is trying to bend back to where it's made to be, which is kind of the sitting position. And, and, <laughs> and meanwhile, it's lifting you up off your feet and bending you towards the floor, trying to give you a swirly. <laughs> it's trying to give you a swirly. Your yes. spaceship's trying to give you a swirly. <laughs> uh, anyhow... Crew didn't much like that. Imagine. That's just weird. I mean, why wouldn't they like that? (laughs) They finally reached their goal of being an astronaut, and they get flashbacks of being a nerd in high school? Like, come on. (laughs) Or a nerd in college. Right. Um, So they were unhappy with it, but we instituted some additional training required for the crew to go figure out how to use this toilet. Okay. One toilet was fully functional that they were to train on, and the other one 
was set up with a camera pointing up towards the hole so they could ascertain where their ass ascertain where their ass is <laughs> where their anus was relative to the hole because ideally it would be in the middle of the hole to be able to have the maximum benefit of the airflow to move the fecal material away this seems a really good time for a uranus joke but <laughs> <laughs> anyway okay so again yeah we we were talking about <laughs> just take a minute for a laugh Serious business here. <laughs> we were talking about urinating and how it wanted to give you a swirly, but now we're talking about, yeah, the training, and we're talking about they developed basically a training toilet where they could learn to line themselves up because actually that's, you know, we are, the toilets we use here on Earth are fairly large. <laughs> They're like, what, 14 inches around or something, you know? Yep. And here you're trying to defecate into the three to four inch um, slide valve up yep. the top. <laughs> yeah, no. It appears so, as though so most the, people the, think that their <laughs> anus is much farther back on their buttocks than it actually is, including astronauts. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, because, and they know this because they set up this training toilet that had a camera right up where you're supposed to defecate. Yeah. And so they got a nice little view of that so they could learn how to line that up. Yes. We also made it a, so this became part of the training program for the astronauts. We also instigated a need at that time for each of the astronauts to go back to the trainer and reorient themselves within two weeks of their flights. Right. It's probably. And there was a log that they had to sign up on. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. So they have to sign a document that says, yes, I did practice how to poop in zero G. Yeah. So that toilet. Continued to be the the design that was used for the first f four or five space shuttle missions. Mm -hmm. They were trying to utilize the monies that were available to fix life-threatening conditions, not because this was still second string. It wasn't a life-threatening condition. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, you're saying that toilet continued to be used for a few missions because it, I mean, fundamentally it worked even if it wasn't the greatest design. Right. And... It, it worked, and it wasn't the greatest design, and, and it met the, the mission requirements. Right, right. And, yeah, and they wanted to... So, briefly, briefly, and I want to stick with this, but briefly, you said they wanted to spend money on life-threatening stuff. So, there was other stuff that they were kind of working on in the in the initial first few missions that was uh, turned out to be a bit more important? There are other things in the first few missions that were of concern. What... At the second mission, we had to come home early because we had a fuel cell die. Oh, wow. And, and again, if you have fuel cells, basically a power generator. Power, fuel cells a power generator. It uses a, a cryogenic oxygen and hydrogen to make power. And we had one of those go bad. And it went bad, and there was not a good landing site in terms of weather. So we ended up landing in White Sands, New Mexico. Oh, right. Wow. Interesting. Well, well, we'll talk about that more, but uh, we'll stick with where we're at. So stuck with that toilet for the first few missions. and Tried to solve the problem through crew training. Right, right. Make sure they... Now, I think it was STS-9, which was our first space lab mission. So space lab was just basically... Space lab was a big, big can that we put in the cargo bay. Yeah. To put uh, experiments on. Right. And I believe, if I recall correctly, that was the first time we did uh, experiments on animals in space. 
If it wasn't STS-9, then it was somewhat frequent. But the story goes with uh, the first time we put animals in space, i.e. rats and yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, okay. lab rats. Um, I believe there was may have been a monkey um, and other mammals to see what their exposure to space was. Well, that mission had several problems. One, we brought in some non-astronaut people, scientists, to act as mission specialists. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> wait, when you say non-astronaut people, these people weren't really trained as previous astronauts had been. At, at that time, we had mission specialists that were trained for about four months and to become. Oh wow! Part of the, the so that's the different crew. from from what I'm used to towards the end or, of the shuttle program. Mission specialists or payload specialists. So, just to give some context. Yeah, like <laughs> the initial astronauts of all sorts of from Apollo, you know, back to Mercury, Gemini, etc. They were test pilots. Yeah, and that kind of continued in the beginning of the shuttle program, and honestly continued throughout the entire shuttle program. A lot mm-hmm. of a lot of astronauts were test pilots. They were military. You know, they became test pilots. They had thousands and thousands of hours of flight time. And then they were admitted into the astronaut corps and received extensive training on... (laughs) If you hear any breathing, that's my dog cuddling up to my dad right now. Hi, sweetie. Anyway, extensive training on being an astronaut and doing the mission. Mm -hmm. But, again, I'm also used to, towards the end of the shuttle program, there were payload specialists and Mm -hmm. mission specialists. Yeah, payload specialist and mission specialist. So these were not necessarily military folk. These were often more academic folk. But they, you know, again, by the end of the program, they basically went through all the same astronaut training that the pilot corps would do. But, you know, they just didn't have the military background. They had more of an academic background. Yeah, that's firm. So, but but as that started with the with the first mission specialist, you're telling me that basically... Was not quite the same. Be like no. four months is not standard astronaut training by the end of the shuttle program. I'd have to say payload specialist rather than mission specialist. Okay, but still, the, the mission specialist and the pilot and commander were all astronauts. They've gone through the whole training progress. They had. Yeah, they had. Okay, but we're, the payload specialists could be trained for as little as at that time, um, four months. Four months, and then go on a mission. That's wild, man. That I mean, again, so how long is normal astronaut training before you get on a mission? Years. Before you get on a mission? Yeah. And the minimum training is on the order of two years. Right. The actual time from becoming astronaut to flight was on the order of seven to nine years. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this idea that people are training for four months and getting on, I mean, that's pretty wild to me. That's we had to a me. vehicle. We had three vehicles that could support seven people. Three vehicles? 103, 104, 105, and Columbia. Okay, four vehicles. Right, okay. Four vehicles could potentially support seven. Right. Okay. We had a... And we know that there's a total... Astronaut core. Total of five, uh, but there were never five at the same time. So, but we'll, yeah. So four vehicles at any given time that could support seven astronauts. You right. had an astronaut core of too many. Nearly 170 people. Mm-hmm. You know, 170 people might have made sense if you were going to fly every month, but 
we've never got to a never month flight. Was that actually kind of the initial goal? Initial goal was every two weeks. So initially the goal was to do a launch every two weeks. That's pretty wild. Yeah, you never got even right close to that. We never got anything close to two weeks. Wait a minute, yeah. actually. Think, let me think about this through for a second. If the goal was a, 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 a launch every two weeks, how long was the duration intended to be, mission duration? Mission duration was seven to 14 days, seven typical. Okay. All right. Well, you guys definitely had durations much longer than that, so that's interesting. But, yeah, if you went into a 14-day duration, you could potentially have had two uh, two shuttles in orbit at the same time. No, that was never going to happen. Well, excuse me. The, the concept was that this would be a reusable device that you could launch on, on yeah. a two-week interval. Trying to make it more like an airliner. Trying to make it more like an airliner. And that caused a lot of consternation within NASA as they didn't know what they should check on, on the vehicle between turnaround. Right. As their experience was to check everything in a new build for every flight. Right. So they uh, actually let out a contract to another, to Boeing. Mm-hmm. Rockwell was building it. Rockwell was the intermediate. Boeing was contracted to go determine what it is we should check out on an every flight basis and what we should. Because, of course, by the way, yeah, just to, for comparison's sake, again, we're trying to make it more like an airliner. Yeah. An airliner, you don't go over every freaking thing, every freaking flight. That'd be ridiculous. That That's would be correct. like, you know, every time you're going to drive your car, going over every nut and bolt, you know. You don't right. do that. You do do regular preventative maintenance, and you do kind of, you know, you do inspections on regular intervals. So the question at this point was, what should those intervals be? Yeah. Yeah, correct. And what Boeing, the contractor that was doing this, had experience with airlines, and they were had encouraged that we do every flight maintenance on a certain number of things, and then periodic maintenance on other things. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they helped us build the test and, and checkout requirements, and we had um, turnaround checkout requirements that uh, required more than two weeks to accommodate the best more than two weeks okay so so once you had those requirements there was no way that you well there's no way that you could do a two-week turnaround but i mean we are also talking about three four vehicles you know at the time at any given time we had at 1.4 vehicles beginning of the program we had one and came two right we had a facility to test and check them out that could accommodate two gotcha. initially. Which facility did you do? You didn't do the tests and checks in the orbiter processing facilities and like in their hangars? Orbiter processing facility has two bays when it was first built. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that's again, like the things, building I work things in. are different. Things are different from beginning to end. Like, yeah. Um, at the end, there was a orbiter processing facility an OPF. For each of them, right? Nope. No. So there's only two. There's three. There's three. Okay. And again, we're talking at the end, four vehicles. Prior to Columbia going south, we had four vehicles, yes. Right. Excuse me. Sorry. You're right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Prior to Columbia, there was, you know, and then so also, yeah, most of my life, there's Endeavor, Columbia, Atlantis, Challenger, gone. What's the other one? Endeavor, Columbia, Atlantis. Enterprise was the the mock-up. Mock-up. Challenger lost in the 80s. Challenger. Discovery. 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 That's the other. Okay, yeah. Endeavor, 
Columbia, Atlantis Discovery. So those are the you, four. You like the names. I go by tail numbers. Well, you know, yeah, I like the names. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but yeah, you've mentioned like once or twice. Yeah, STS 101, 102, whatever. Those are, yeah, those are the tail numbers for no, each of them. those are no. not the tail numbers. Those are mission numbers. The tail numbers are Orbiter Vehicle 099, OV 101, OV 102, OV, OV? Orbiter Vehicle. Oh. Well, excuse me. All right, OV-101. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you just say 101, 102, blah, 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 and I thought it was STS, but no, yeah, those are the mission numbers. And again, in those instances, STS stands for Space Transport System? Transport, space, tra- space Transportation System, yes. Right, okay, and OV is Orbiter Vehicle. This is some of the fun, by the way, of my dad building spaceships, is that <laughs> he talks in alphabet soup all the time. <laughs> so I'm really good over the years at deciphering acronyms, I got to tell you. But, uh, okay, so we've, you've got two OPFs, and you've got four vehicles prior to Columbia. Where the heck do the other two live? <laughs> it's like, are they hanging out in the VAB all the time? Mm-hmm. We stuck them in the VAB if they were not in flow. Okay, all right, interesting. So VAB is either vehicle or vertical assembly building. Mm-hmm. And if you're ever out here on the Space Coast, right, cl- if you're <laughs> remotely close to uh, the Space Center, you can probably see the VAB from where you're at. From where you at? See, from where you are, you can you can. It's a huge box. Yeah, it yeah. looks like a big box. Yeah, a big box with a big American flag on it, and so that that building was built during the Apollo program, literally to like do final assembly on the Apollo rockets. That's firm. Um, and they would stack the Apollo rocket vertically, stack the vehicle vertically, you know, and put it on a mobile launch platform, and that mobile launch platform went on top of this incredibly large tremendous crawler vehicle (laughs) and the crawler would bring the whole mobile launch platform with the launch tower and the apollo 5 rocket out onto the launch pads that were what one and a half ish miles away two two miles away and it went at a whopping top speed of how fast two (laughs) two miles per hour it could do three when it was empty oh well (laughs) burning hard there so yeah it took a full hour to walk this thing from to walk you know well to to move on the crawler we never got one out there in an hour that I know of. Yeah, all right. More than an hour. <laughs> more like two hours more? Uh, typically, it went at one mile per hour out to the pad. So two hours it would take to get out there. Well, that's with shuttle. Yeah. So and we don't. Yeah, off the top I, of our head, we don't know how fast it actually went with Apollo. Probably that slow or slower. I would probably go even slower. That was an even taller stack. Yeah, but it had a, uh, it had a tower that it, it helped it when it went out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the shuttle actually didn't have the tower with it. So, interesting. All right. So, yeah. So, so you've got two orbital vehicles, you know, two. And two by the way. Two places to do work on them. This is a good time also to talk about the different elements of the shuttle briefly. There's, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but there's the the orbiter, which is the, the black and white part, which is, you know, the part that goes up and comes back down and lands. There's the external tank, which is... <laughs> Actually, with the first few missions, it was white, but later on it was orange. You've probably seen it orange. Well, I had white one time. Okay, one time. So, yeah, big orange external tank, and that fed fuel into the orbiter's rockets. And then there was attached to the external tank, there was also the solid rocket boosters. Those are the two white things on the sides, um, skinnier than the external tank. So, and the flow would be the launch kind of flow. uh, You'd have orbiter, main engines, ignition... And then you would have the solid rockets ignite. When the solid rockets ignite, you'd have liftoff. It would go for, 
you know, the solid rocket burn time, those would drop off. Those were actually recovered in the ocean by NASA, brought back, refurbished, reused. The, the orbiter kept the external tank a little bit longer for extra fuel as it was continuing to burn out into orbit. But then the external tank was dropped and that was expendable. And then so the orbiter was the part that would, you know, obviously orbit and come back and land. So yeah, when we're talking about OV, what, 101, 102, etc., we're talking about the orbiters themselves, and those are the parts that were being reprocessed and whatnot in these different hangars. External tanks were, were jettisoned such that they would fall in the Pacific Ocean, mm -hmm. typically. Ideally not on Hawaii. <laughs> and near the end of the program, Taco Bell Corporation was putting a target out in the Pacific Ocean. Right, yeah, yeah. And if the external tank hit the target, they were going to buy everybody in the United States a taco. <laughs> it's so nutty. It's weird. And they, they they put it in the best place they can. It's just yeah. the reentry of the external tank is... is Didn't have a lot of guidance there. <laughs> it had no guidance, and it was we tried to make it tumble as oh, really? it reentered so that it would improve... We. NASA tried to make it tumble when it reentered so that it would uh, improve its chances of being burned up and not come through as a intact element. Yeah, because uh, anyway, well, anyway. intact elements, even uh, even really small foamy elements at that kind of speed can do a whole lot of damage. But that's, uh, uh, that, that's yeah, a story that's, for another time. Yeah. So... Boeing Boy, where were helped we? us develop, develop a set of requirements for test and checkout to happen every flight. Mm -hmm. The best time that was ever established for getting a vehicle into the OPF and out of the OPF and do these mm -hmm. was on the order of uh, a month, somewhere between 28 and 30 days. Mm -hmm. That's just how long it took with two shift operation, with two or three shift operation. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the the flying every two weeks was a marketing thing when we originally proposed the program. It, marketing to who? As NASA has no NASA had no idea at the time how to operate a reusable vehicle and mm. what they should test. Right. But they wanted to get another program funded because the Apollo was dying. Right. And they didn't want to put everybody out on the street. So. <clears throat> We left at SDS-1. Mm -hmm. SDS-1, Crippen and John Young had mm -hmm. a problem with the toilet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> SDS-2, I do not remember who the pilot and co-pilot were. That was also a two-man crew, as I recall. Let's see. And on orbit, we had a uh, fuel cell failure. It was Joe Angle and Richard Truly. Because of fuel cell failure, we lost a level of redundancy in our power generation that makes the computer work and all the other good stuff. So we chose to loan, land that vehicle early. The day they wanted to land, the weather was bad at both Kennedy Space Center and Edwards Air Force Base, and they chose to land at White Sands, New Mexico. White Sands, New Mexico, we did not have any ground services available. They had a runway and they had a um, stair set for the crew to get out. They didn't have the ground cooling unit. They didn't have the ground purge unit. They didn't have the external uh, power equipment. 
and they didn't have the mate demate facility we call it where it lifts up the um, orbiter for installation into the onto the 747 to fly it back to Kennedy Space Center so they shipped a bunch of hardware out from Edwards Air Force Base to White Sands, New Mexico. Tried to do the preliminary checkout and safing to get it ready for flight. And then to get it on the 747, they uh, brought out three cranes and had three carrying operators operate simultaneously to get it in place. It didn't go quite as well as they'd like. It took a lot more time than they'd, they normally do. It got done. In the checkout in uh, safing of the vehicle, they had another failure on another system associated with life control and, and thermal control systems, which resulted in breakage of something. Specifically, we, as they didn't have a ground cooling unit there at um, White Sands, New Mexico, they ran what we call their ammonia boiler, which takes ammonia and utilizes the vaporization of ammonia to provide cooling. When they went to turn that off, a valve failed open, drove the temperature coming out of the ammonia boiler quite cold, and that cold liquid went up to the um, heat ex water heat exchanger in the crew module and broke the heat exchanger. It froze that heat exchanger. Uh, water expands when it gets frozen mm -hmm. and broke that heat exchanger. Oops. But we got it back and we reworked all that stuff. And once again, we had the challenges in that flight relative to the toilet where mm -hmm. the, toilet, the crew was talking to the ground crew about use of the toilet while they were in flight. <laughs> and this nonsense about the toilet continued for... Uh, two more flights. The toilet manufacturer requested that NASA not talk about the toilet on the open loops because that contractor failed. It was damaging their reputation uh, on a regular basis, and it was costing them one to two million dollars to recover from that reputation loss. Boy, well, that's pretty shitty. So. Uh, I believe it was STS-9 or around there that they went to talking about the difficulties with the toilet on a secure communication line that's called medical loop, mm -hmm. where if the, the astronauts are having medical issues, they can talk to doctors on the ground without it being disseminated to public. Right. So, then we got to a space lab mission where animals were on board. I thought you said that was earlier. Uh, it was like SDS-9. Okay. Now, we're no longer talking about the toilet on open loops. Yeah. And we got animals in this big tin can back there. Right. Well, it had been a while since anybody in NASA had flown an animal. Mm-hmm. I mean, they flew chimpanzees for chest and checkout in the early 60s. Yeah. And they put the diapers on chimpanzees. Uh -huh. What was not well understood is that urine and fecal from laboratory rats will become airborne. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and the cages were designed similar to laboratory cages on the ground. So like metal grates. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> when they opened it up, they discovered some of this by the end of that. Machine, when, when you say they opened it up, you mean they opened up the kind of the tin can in the back and they opened up and went back tin can in the back. They discovered some of this. Mm-hmm. By the end of that mission, they were all wearing goggles. Oh, man. And, uh, like face masks? Um, Respirators? Not face masks. The things you see in hosp- hospitals for... Yeah, like the, the paper face the mask paper thing. The paper face mask. Thing. Yeah, yeah. To protect their eyes and et cetera. You guys had that on mission? Oh, yeah. Interesting. There's The, the ones on International Space Station are, rel- are a big plastic bag that you put over your head. What do, what do you have those for in case someone in the crew gets sick? Um, one, somebody in the crew gets sick. And two, there's on the International Space Station, mm-hmm. uh, the cooling system on the outside is ammonia. So if ammonia Anhydrous gets- ammonia. So if you get any of that leakage in the cabin, Bad it really day. tears up your in- insides. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. Cool. Yes. Yeah, so... so <laughs> Yeah, we got floating animal poo. Great, great, great. And urine. And urine. Super cool. In addition to that, <laughs> I talked about them having the payload specialists where the guy only tra- trained for a few months. Yeah. And maybe lining up, uh, you know, on the uh, the training toilet, that wasn't a big priority for him? Apparently not. <laughs> As he got on orbit and he did not know how to use the toilet. <laughs> And he made a mess of things. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how big a mess he made, but he made a mess. Like a drunk guy at a frat house party. <laughs> I can only infer that he, too, didn't know to open up the slide valve before he went to attempt to go poo. So he ended up putting a, a stack of poo right on top of the slide valve. <laughs> stack then he went to urinate, and he decided that the <laughs> urinal funnel was unsat- un- unsanitary. Mm-hmm. So he decided he wasn't going to eat, so he wouldn't have to go to poo anymore. And the medics said, that's not a good thing. And they kept him on liquid for a couple of days, and then they gave him, told him to take a laxative to clear his system. And now he made a real mess. Mm-hmm. So after the exposure to the animal fecal material in the lab and and the failure of this individual to even understand what the hell he was buying into (laughs) before he got there, they started to emphasize some improvements to the toilet. (laughs) All right. All right. That seems a good place to end right now. But in that, that that particular individual had no business being on the shuttle. He really didn't. Yeah. But that's where we were at the time. That's where you were at the time. That's that's wild, man. All right. Um. Well, cool. I feel like we learned some things today. <laughs> Hey, thanks again for listening to My Dad Built Spaceships. I hope you enjoyed that one and all my silly, ridiculous humor. If you're enjoying this or you have some more information about the shuttle program or the space program that you'd like to share, 
or if you had a family member that has been a part of our amazing space program, go to mydadbuiltspaceships.com and send a contact message. I'd love to hear from you. On the site, you can also learn more about me, my dad, the podcast, or even make a donation if you'd like. We really appreciate that. Thanks again, and keep exploring our amazing universe. Thank you.